0: We don't always explain why we pick particular scripture readings for the scripture readings. Today's was from Revelation 19. I'm going to tell you why we did that today. If you look in Revelation 19. This is a little mini sermon for the sermon. In Revelation 19, you have uh, the marriage supper of the lamb. So the, the lamb receives his bride, the Christ receives his bride, and then the Christ defeats the beast. Uh, that's your framework as we read Genesis 2 and 3. Because in Genesis 2, uh, our, in our last study, the Adam, the man, receives his bride. But what does he do with the beast? And that is the failure that we'll see today. Our scripture reading today comes from, uh, or our, our passage today comes from Genesis chapter 2. We'll read Genesis 2 25 chapter 3 verse 7 this is the word of God remember that the the man has just received his bride and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, in your infinite wisdom, you have revealed to us where our sin comes from, why we are born in bondage to sin. It's here in this text. And Lord, when we look at it at first sight, it doesn't look like much. We need your help in understanding this. How could this, Lord, be what? change the course of the history of mankind. Show us, Lord. Give us your Spirit's understanding. Enlighten our hearts and our minds so that we could know what's happening here. And Lord, protect us from these same dangers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we saw the setting of Genesis 2 a few weeks ago. And in that Genesis 2 setting... We saw God's good creation order. There was a hierarchy set into place. God is Lord over all. Adam as his appointed king. The woman made for the man, but she's also meant to rule with him. And then there were all of the beasts. And the fish and the birds, and they're all subjected to the man and the woman. And in that happy place, where the man and his bride are living in the presence of God, they lived in a state of, I I think we could almost call it, blissful naivete. You see that at the end of chapter 2. The Lord tells us at the end of chapter 2 that they were naked and not ashamed. That word naked there in Hebrew is arom. That word means naked. The man and the, the woman, they don't have clothes on. And it doesn't bother them in the slightest, the Spirit tells us. There is a sense here in which they are like toddlers. Babies don't know that they're naked. It's the way they come into the world and they will fight you to keep it that way. <laughs> Adam and Eve are like that. They, are, they have that sense of naivety. And this truth of who they are and this, this setting before we get to the fall... This especially comes out in the very first verse of chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was, our ESV Bible says, crafty. The word in the Hebrew is arum. So the man and the woman are arum. The serpent is arum. You see how very close those two words are together? It's a play on words. Arum is not always a bad thing. It's often used in, in Proverbs to show shrewdness or wisdom. The comparison here is that, that, that Moses is giving us, the Lord is giving us through Moses, it's meant to show us the man and woman aren't just naked of clothing. They also lack uh, street smarts. They're, they're, they're so simple, they're so naive, they don't even know that they're naked. The serpent, by comparison, has the street smarts. He has the shrewdness. He has knowledge. He has experience. All right, so, so there, there's our comparison that we see just in those, those first couple verses. Now, here's what else we know about the serpent going into our story. The serpent, look at verse 1 of chapter 3, is a beast of the field. He's a, he's a creature that the Lord God has made. He's a created being. He's not an eternal God. He's a created being and he's a beast. And since he's a beast, created who dwells on the earth, he is subject to who? To Adam. So in Genesis 1, God says that he made man to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth, including the serpent. Psalm 8 makes it really obvious for us. Speaking of the creation of man, David says, Psalm 8, verses 6 through 7, he says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also who? The beasts of the field. The serpent is a beast of the field. Therefore, he has been assigned by God to be subject to the appointed king. All right, so that is the setting of our story here. That is all that we need to know moving in. And the way that we're going to break up the rest of the story is, is through three sections. The first is the inversion of order. The second section, the perversion of the truth. And the third, the subversion of God. And if we want to do the fourth, you could say the new and better version of Adam. Inversion of order, perversion of truth, subversion of God, and the new and better version, Christ himself. So this, this beast, and now that we have the, the setting, you have where we're headed, let's look at the beast. This particular beast of the field has decided, and we don't know why he's decided this, but he has decided he's not going to be subject to humanity. And he's not going to be subject to the the, the man and the woman. He's going to be rebellious against God's order. We see this immediately in verse 1, when the serpent goes to the woman and speaks in such a way as to deceive her. When he does that, God's creation order is being challenged. The beast's goal, and we see this very quickly, his goal is to lead the woman. The woman will then lead the man. And the man will be led away from God. That is an inversion of the order that God had created. Another issue that we can't ignore here, and I know you might be wondering about it. Is he going to say anything about this? Yes, he's a talking beast. There are only a few talking beasts in the Bible. And in general... Whenever we see a talking beast, it's not a good thing. The exception is in the book of Numbers. All right, so in the the book of Numbers, the Lord himself opens the mouth of a donkey in order to speak to Balaam. In that instance, it's clearly of the Lord. The Bible says it is the Lord who opens the beast's mouth, that the beast is able to see something that the man cannot see. The Lord uses the animal to reveal the truth to the man. But in every other instance that we have talking beasts, Something wicked is afoot. The the talking beast in Daniel chapter 7 is a wicked ruler. The two talking beasts in Revelation 13, both are wicked. The first is the beast from the sea. It's given a mouth and it utters blasphemous words. The second is the beast of the earth and it deceives the people by way of its uh, loud mouth accomplice. All right, so sometimes in Revelation, it can speak, and sometimes there's a false prophet in its mouth that speaks for it. What we're supposed to see in Daniel, what we're supposed to see in Revelation, is that the lineage of those wicked talking beasts goes back to Genesis chapter 3. They are beasts who are of that serpent. So while talking beasts is normally a bad thing, we can, we can get that, it's also apparent from Scripture that this is an unnatural thing. As interesting as it may be to you, Narnia is fiction. There was not a time before the fall when it was normal for animals to talk. Whatever is happening with this serpent here, this is unnatural. It's not normal. Okay, so the, the big question then that we that we are led to when we, we read this is well what exactly put it into this beast's mind to rebel against God? That's a natural question. If you're reading the text and you're thinking about what happened in chapter one and chapter two, you're asking that question what put it into this beast's mind to rebel against God? All right, God made creation good, didn't He? But we know from the rest of Scripture that this serpent here isn't just a snake. Revelation 20, verse 2, reveals to us that the the dragon beast of Revelation is that ancient serpent. And then John says it this way, Who is the devil and Satan? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, That the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's been lying since when? The beginning. That lying from the beginning part, Jesus is talking about Genesis 3. We see his lies in our text this morning. So the devil either is identified exactly with the serpent or he's controlling the serpent But that still doesn't tell us how he came to be a liar, does it? God made everything good, good, very good. That's not our opinion. It's not Moses' opinion. Oh, in the text, God saw that it was good. God's observation of his creation is that it was good, good, very good. So how does something good become something rebellious? How does something good become something that is deceitful or evil? What's going on? Some of you have heard stories that come from outside the Bible. There's there's some hints that we have in Scripture, Luke and Isaiah and Revelation, Daniel. They all seem to say that that the devil is a heavenly creature of some sort. and, And his rebellion began in heaven and he was cast down to earth. That's all that's told. Why? I don't know. How? I don't know. The Bible does not answer that question. And I believe that's intentional. In the same way that Adam and his wife were to trust God's provision of wisdom and knowledge while they were in the garden, I believe that we are to trust what God has revealed to us in Scripture as sufficient. We have what we need to have. We know what we need to know. We have what we need in order to be faithful to God. We have what we need to, be, to, to, uh, to, to trust in His sovereign wisdom. We have what we need in order to worship Him. We find a, a, a similar parable to this idea, this struggle, in the book of Job. Right? So God's dealings with Satan at the beginning of the book of Job are intentionally hidden from Job. In fact, that's part of the point of the book. And then God rebukes Job for questioning him regarding those hidden things. He's not supposed to know. He's supposed to trust the Lord. I think it's the same for us. Augustine says regarding this, issue, this same issue, he says, We must learn how not to know what cannot be known. It's kind of thick, isn't it? We say it again. We must learn how not to know What cannot be known. He's saying we must learn to be content with what God has revealed to us. We must learn to trust his wisdom when it comes to what remains hidden from us. So how did it come to be that Satan conspired to tempt Adam and his wife? What's his motivation? What has brought this evil into a good creation? text doesn't say. The Genesis text doesn't even specifically say that it is Satan doing the tempting, does it? What the Genesis text emphasizes, and this, this is what we need to see clearly as we study it this morning, is that whoever or whatever is controlling the serpent, it doesn't matter because all we must know, all we must know in order to understand the story is that the serpent is a beast of the field. Moses tells us that, the Spirit tells us that through Moses. God's order was such that Adam was to have dominion over this beast. But Adam failed. He failed to have dominion, and in his failure, he allowed the inversion of God's hierarchical order to take place. And disorder came in. So that's the inversion of the order the second section uh, of the sermon is the perversion of truth this one is is longer so provide more space for yourself on your notes okay so let's examine now the temptation and the deception itself the serpent begins his attack by rebelling against God's created order he goes first to the woman but the serpent doesn't stop just by inverting the order his attack continues with a deception, and the deception continues with a perversion of the truth. Look at the very first words from the serpent's mouth, Genesis 3.1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What is the truth? The truth is that God has provided all sorts of good things for the man and woman. God has created and planted himself an entire garden of delights for Adam and Eve. All of the fruit trees were available to them except one. But the serpent is questioning that goodness of God, isn't he? He's questioning the provision of God. Another way to to read his question or hear his question, to hear the tone behind it, Let's put it in modern words. Did God seriously make all those wonderful-looking fruit trees and then tell you you can't eat any of it? And then if you read between the lines, he's a stingy jerk, isn't he? What What a stingy God. Look at all this good stuff he made, and you can't have any of it. Did God seriously do that, Eve? serpent is questioning God's goodness by questioning God's word. And that is the essence of demonic temptation, isn't it? Did God really say that? Is God really like that? Yet the woman doesn't know this yet. We know it. We've seen the rest of the story and the rest of the Bible. But she is, remember, she's never dealt with temptation before. She's never dealt with deception before. She is a Rome. She is naked. She is unguarded like a child. And in her naivety and in her inexperience, she's drawn in to the servant's debate. Look at verse 2. She answers him, we may eat of the trees of the garden. Okay, good answer. Eve, leave now. That's all she needs to say. But she feels the need to say something more. Instead of turning and walking away at that moment, He says in verse three, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Let me just give you a framework here. The serpent starts the conversation by questioning God's word. And he is, without really saying it, he's also inviting the woman, he's, 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 he's tempting her, he's inviting the woman to subject God's word to her own judgment. that's what he's done let's talk about what god really said okay i'll i'll play that game she says she she she's invited to question and to judge god's word and she gives into the invitation she takes a step closer to the serpent's false view of the word and look what she does she overly restricts god's word you see her additional restriction Neither shall you touch it. That's the woman's addition. God did not say that. But you can see what's happened. The serpent has succeeded in getting her to see God's law as a restriction. She should see God's law pointing to his provision and his goodness and his love for her. So what she should say is this. God has permitted me to eat of the tree of life. And in order to continue to be with Him, He has commanded that I not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but rather to trust in His provision of that knowledge. God loves me, God provides for me. Isn't God good? Isn't it amazing? That the creator of this magnificent universe would entrust this world to my husband and I, and then permit us in his presence and allow us to eat of the tree of life so that I can dwell with God forever? Isn't God good? And, Serpent, I want you to know I don't deserve this from God. I don't deserve what he's entrusted to me. And all the goodness he's given me, I'm made of a bone, and my husband is made out of dust. But God has entrusted his entire creation to us and has given us all we need. Who are we that God would be mindful of us? She doesn't say that. She should say that. But she doesn't say that. She's already been lured into the temptation. She's already allowed the serpent's words to dance around in her heart. Maybe, Maybe God is restrictive. Maybe God is holding back from me. Maybe what I'm not allowed to have is better than what I do have. In her answer to the serpent, Eve has shown herself to be vulnerable. As soon as she reinterprets God's word in her own words and in her own mind, and that reinterpretation shows extra restriction, she's shown that she's vulnerable to desire she reveals her heart might not be totally satisfied with what god has given her the serpent see what he's done he's turned her eyes away from the goodness of god's gifts and now her focus is not on the goodness and the wonder and the abundance of god's gifts Her focus is now on God's constraint and what is forbidden from her. You see the danger here? Friends, this is dangerous territory for any of us. To lose sight of the gifts that God has given us and then focus on what we do not have. That is dangerous territory. Be very cautious, friends. Be very cautious of focusing on the law and not the gift. The law is not the gift. The law protects the gift. The law protects the gift. See God for his abundant provision, not for his restriction. James 1.14 says this, though. This is what happens. But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin begins with desire. And desire begins with a dissatisfaction with what God has given you. So we see here, even before the temptation has been conceived, that there is a, there's a fissure, there's a little crack in the, in, in the woman's contentment that the serpent has introduced. She's not reveling in God's provision. Her eyes are wandering. And the serpent picks up on that and he drives the wedge deeper. Now that he sees that opening, look what he does. He goes for the big lie. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, he's calling God a liar. You See that? God clearly said, in Genesis 2, But of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did God say you will die? Yes. The woman knew that judgment was to come with disobedience. In fact, God's judgment is the one thing she got right when she answered the serpent. Look at verse 3. But God said, so she's repeating what had been told. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So She knows it. She knows that judgment is a part of this. The serpent's lie, his first lie, is to deny God's judgment. He says, you will not surely die. See what he's doing? He's denying God's judgment by minimizing the consequences of sin. This is how temptation works. Think of any sin you've ever given into. In order to make disobedience to God attractive, the consequences of that sin must be minimized. Judgment must be minimized. Just take this uh, brainstorm, theft. It's an easy one. It begins, theft begins with a dissatisfaction with what you have and a desire for something more. And then you have to persuade yourself that the gain of that desired thing is greater than the risk of getting caught you have to lessen in your own mind the cost of the sin in order to strengthen the temptation of the perceived benefit see the math cost benefit analysis lessen the risk increase the benefit that's what the serpent's doing here get rid of the threat of judgment lessen the cost make the sin more attractive It is no surprise that in the history of Christianity, one of the first doctrines to go out the door amongst liberal congregations is the doctrine of hell. Get rid of the doctrine of hell first. Get rid of God's judgment. Then you can start chopping away at God's word. Now that there's no threat of hell, let's deny God's design. For men and women. And say that there are no differences. And the Bible is antiquated when it comes to God's design and gender roles. Now let's affirm the killing of innocent babies. In the womb and call it reproductive justice. Because after all women must be like men. And men don't have to have babies so neither should women. Now let's affirm adultery. Because we all need to follow our hearts in order to be fulfilled. Now, let's affirm homosexuality, because after all, love is love, and love is a good thing. Now, let's affirm transgenderism, because after all, God is non-binary, and we're like him, and did God really say he made us male and female? You see the acceleration away from God's word? And if you think, oh, Dustin, churches aren't teaching that. Friends, churches are teaching these things. False churches. And they all began when they got rid of judgment. The acceleration away from God's word begins with a denial of judgment. Without God as judge, we become judge. And that is the position that the serpent is shepherding the woman towards. And that's what we see next. The serpent tempts the woman to begin to judge God's motives. But the serpent said to the woman, look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. Why would he possibly make up this lie? Well, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the perversion of the truth here in verse 5 is, is odd. Because if you just read the text, It doesn't seem like much has been perverted. It is true that the eyes of the man and woman will be opened if they eat of the tree. That's true. It's also true. They will be like God in knowing good and evil. We see that in in verse 22 at the end of the chapter. We'll be there in a few weeks, but just look there real quick. Look what the Lord says when he's exiling them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what the serpent is saying is technically true. But it is a perversion of the truth, isn't it? There is sedition built into these true statements, isn't there? The serpent makes it seem, he makes it feel as if God is holding something back from his creatures. Something good. Inside that seditious statement, the serpent is telling, he's communicating to the woman, God is not trustworthy. God is not good. God gives some good stuff to you, but he holds back the really good stuff for himself. He's fearful. He's fearful that you'll be his equal. Isn't God childish? Isn't God oppressive? God's commands are not life-giving. They are oppressive. To be truly free, to be truly divine, you must break away from his oppressive regime, his oppressive hierarchy. Get out from under God's thumb and you'll blossom. You'll blossom into into the divine being that you're meant to be. That is the lie of the serpent isn't it and that lie gets repeated throughout history we see it all throughout the old testament we see it moving into modern times as well marxism at its most basic level is a repeat of this satanic lie feminism is the same refrain wokeism is the same to view the world through the lens of oppression and power and envy and grievances rather than provision and opportunity and blessing? That is the serpent's lie. It is to constantly think of yourself as a victim rather than seeing God's good will for you. The serpent's ultimate deception is to persuade Eve to see God's good and perfect law as oppressive restraint, a withholding of the good rather than abundant provision. And once he has deceived her in that way, once she's convinced of that lie, the hook is set, isn't it? The rebellion commences. This moves us to our last section, the subversion of God. Look at verse 6. So... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, is it true that the tree is good for food? It is. Look back at chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So yes, it's good for food. Is it also a delight to the eyes? Yes, it is. Look at verse 9 again. All the trees were pleasant to the sight. God made all the trees in the garden good. But is that tree desired to make one wise? This is where we have to be careful. This is, after all, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It will make one wise. Their eyes will be opened. But God has forbidden this as the means for obtaining wisdom. It will make one wise, but it will, it will make one wise outside of God's conveyance. It is wisdom apart from God. That word desire there, desired to make one wise, that is the exact same word in the Hebrew used for covet in Exodus chapter 20. So next is 20, verse 17. You get the, the law handed down by God. You shall not covet, same word, desire. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, desire your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And That's the problem. The serpent has deceived the woman. He's led her heart away from God as the source of truth and wisdom, and he's taught her, not only is God a liar, but she can get wisdom without him. She can get wisdom through the tree, without God. So she sees it, she takes it, she eats it. Now, what was her sin? Disobedience. Ultimately, her sin is disobedience. But, but what a what brought about her sin? She was deceived. She became dissatisfied with the good. She was lured into discontent, and her dissatisfaction with God's goodness, her discontent with God's provision, brought about her disobedience. As, as we saw in James, desire gave birth to sin. Now, God made Eve and all of us as people who desire desire in itself the 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 emotion of desire is not itself harmful we are to desire and delight in what god has given us desire and the acquisition of what our heart desires can lead to delight think of god's good gifts you desire god's good gifts you receive god's good gifts It is a delight. It is a blessing. But sin is born from disordered desires. Desires for things that are outside of God's provision. Desires for things that are forbidden by God. The acquisition of these desires does not lead to delight. It does not lead to happiness or contentment. Rather, the acquisition of disordered desires leads to despair and destruction and that's what we see in our text and we'll see this going into the next week now before we move on to the next section before we talk about Adam I want us to see a couple things here the first is that all of us men and women are vulnerable to being drawn into sin like this we are all vulnerable to feeling discontent and then desiring something that God has not given us. That thou shalt not covet is a command for all of us, men and women. Desire of things outside of God's will for us gives way to sin for all of us. But I think it's worth noting that from the text, it is apparent that the, the woman here has a particular vulnerability to this deception. The devil knows it. He led Eve astray in this way. So, sisters, be aware as daughters of Eve, you have a vulnerability to this. Discontentment is an area where the serpent will attempt to drive a wedge in your relationship with God. And that temptation will come in many, many forms. Your husband is not who you want him to be. The income. That God has given your family is not what you want it to be. Your house is not what you want it to be or where you want it to be. Your kids are not living up to want you, what you want them to be. Your friends are not who you want them to be. The list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Your discontent will begin with a dissatisfaction with what God has provided you, and then it will give way to desires. When those desires are conceived in your heart, they will give birth to sin. Envy, covetousness, bitterness, adultery, it all begins with discontent. Men, you are not immune to this. But it's worth noting that God has revealed to us that this is the means through which the serpent deceived the woman. And that leads us to the next question. What is going on with the man here? What's, what in the world is going on with Adam? He's with her. Eve gave some of the fruit to him and he ate. He was with her. Why did he eat? And if you're wondering, well, I don't think he was with her the whole time. He was with her the whole time. The, the, the verbs or the pronouns, rather, that the serpent uses when he speaks to the woman are plural pronouns. When he's speaking to the woman... He is acknowledging, through the pronouns that he's using, the man and the woman are there. And then Moses reveals to us the man was with her, and he was there the whole time. But why did the man eat? We think, well, maybe he was deceived too. No, he was not deceived. The Bible is clear on this. First Timothy 2:14 could not be more explicit, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's plain. Adam was not deceived. Eve was. And yet Adam sinned. Sin came into the world not through Eve but through Adam. Spirit says this about Adam in Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's obedience. We are born sinners We were born in bondage to sin because of Adam's disobedience. Full stop. Yes, Eve disobeyed, but Adam is our representative king. He is our federal head. Therefore, Adam's disobedience is more consequential. Think of it this way. If President Biden says something to provoke America's enemies, the consequences are far greater than if, Jill Biden says the same thing. The president's comments may cause a war. The first lady's comments might cause offense. What Adam does affects you and me, men and women, because he is our representative head, or he was before Christ. Adam's sin was disobedience. The scripture is also clear on that. Is this nagging question: What led to his disobedience? We've got seven verses about Eve. A lot of info about Eve. She was deceived, and we see the progress of that deception, and we see what's even going on in her heart. She was deceived into doubting God's judgment. She doubted God's own goodness. She desired the wisdom available to her in the fruit. Scripture is very clear. But for the Adam, uh, for the, for Adam, the text only says. She gave some to him and he ate it. That's it. That's the moment that sin came into the world through one man. That's the moment that all of history was changed. And it's not even a full sentence. There's no insight into his heart. There's no commentary on his motivation. There's nothing. So What happened? What brought about his sin? Well, In a word, failure. First of all, Adam failed to confront the serpent. When Adam first discovered that this beast of the field was up to no good, he should have immediately expelled it from the garden. He failed. He failed to protect that sacred place of the garden, and he allowed this obviously hostile beast to remain. Secondly, though, he failed to protect his bride. As soon as the serpent went to Eve, Adam should have stepped in between them, rebuked the serpent, but he didn't. Oh, maybe she'll figure it out. He he allowed his wife to be lured into sin. Adam's final failure was a failure to protect the word of God. As soon as Adam heard the serpent's lies, If he wasn't going to throw him out when he sees him, he wasn't going to throw him out when he approaches uh, uh, Eve. As soon as he heard the serpent's lies and the twisting of God's word, Adam had the responsibility at that moment to rightly represent the word of God. After all, Adam was the one entrusted with the word of God, Adam was the one who received God's command. But Adam said nothing, Adam was silent. He did nothing to protect the garden. He did nothing to protect his bride. He did nothing to defend God's honor in God's word. Adam was silent. Adam was passive. And in the same way that the serpent's deception lured Eve into disobedience, Adam's own passivity brought about his disobedience. Brothers, listen. Passivity is not a virtue. It is not a virtue. The passivity of men creates the environment in which sin is welcomed to flourish. Children are led astray from the gospel because of passive men who don't actively train and teach their kids. Daughters end up with worthless husbands because of passive men. Sons become worthless husbands because of passive men. Wives are led into anxiety and stress, and they become overbearing and bitter because of passive men. True Christian churches, outposts of the kingdom of God, entrusted with the gospel and the word of God, become apostate social clubs, devoid of the spirit, devoid of the truth because of passive men men without conviction, men without courage, men who failed to act like men. How much destruction has been done by the devil throughout the ages ages, while passive men sat back and watched? Men, God has not called you to himself in Christ to be passive, people-pleasing, nice boys who never offend anyone. God has called you to himself in Christ. He saved you in Christ so you wouldn't be like Adam. He's caused you to be born again. New birth, not like Adam. New birth, like Christ. He's called you to be born again into Christ so that you would be like him, the new Adam, the better Adam. Christ was zealous for the temple of God in the way that Adam never was zealous for the garden. When Jesus saw corruption in God's holy place, he flipped over tables. He drove out the money changers with whips. Christ was zealous and active in the defense of the people of God. When Jesus saw the corruption of God's holy people by demons, what did he do? He went from town to town to town casting out demons by the power of his word. When Jesus saw his bride in bondage to sin, he did not stand passively back. He didn't hide behind his career as a carpenter. Oh, I'm just too busy. I just can't deal with that right now. I've got this thing to do. He didn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, there's nothing, nothing I can do. That's just the way it is. Jesus acted. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He confronted and provoked the powers that be. Intentionally. He provoked them. He provoked them so much that they wanted to kill him. And then he gave his own life over for the sake of his bride, the church. That is the action of a man. That is true masculinity. Men follow Jesus, not Adam. Actively Guard the church. God has entrusted his church to faithful men. Men, actively protect your bride and your family. You're the only man who's been entrusted to do that. Also, men, guard the word of God. Guard, you must guard the word of God. Jesus shows us the way to do this as well. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit To be tempted by satan that serpent that ancient dragon and with every temptation with every twisting of god's word from the serpent jesus responded and how did he respond he rightly defended god's word brothers know god's word know what it means know know how to wield the sword effectively And actively defend God's honor and defend God's character in God's revealed word. Brothers, your first loyalty is to God, not you. Adam thought, maybe if I just sit back, this will go okay for me. Not so. Know God's word. Be prepared at all times, in season and out of season, to proclaim and defend God's word. You must know this now. God's word is under assault. It's been under assault from day one, more so today. Your families are under assault. This is not the time to be passive. If we've been born into Christ, we must follow him. He is the rider on the white horse who has come to capture and destroy the beast, he is your role model. Well, our passage began with the unashamedness of the man and woman, right? They're naked, they're in the garden, and they are not ashamed. I want to finish with verse 7, though, because the, this section ends with their shame. Look at verse 7. Immediately after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They are naive no longer. Now they have the same wisdom, you want to call it that, that the serpent has. They've got what they wanted, but what has it gained them? Shame. The story begins with Adam and his bride naked and not ashamed. It ends with them knowing that they are naked and being ashamed of it. And then their pitiful, pitiful attempt to try to cover it all up. They sew fig leaves together. Have you seen fig leaves? They're, they're not meant to be clothes. Fig leaves from one of the trees that God has given them to provide for their nutrition. One of the the trees of abundance that is a sign of God's wonder-giving power. They're supposed to be sustained in health by this fig tree, but they can no longer enjoy it for its intended purpose. Now they use the leaves from this tree to cover their shame. And their covering is not sufficient, is it? Cannot protect them from the judgment that is to come. There's nothing that they can do to escape the consequences of their sin. There's nothing that they can do to escape their shame and their guilt, no matter what they do. Not in I, as we sang. Friends, you're in the same position if you're not in Christ. There is nothing you can do to cover your shame. You cannot cover your guilt whether you've fallen into sin by deceit or by passivity or by your own fallenness, you cannot cover yourself. No matter how you've sinned, no matter how great or how small you perceive that sin to be, you cannot make it go away on your own. There's no covering that will hide your shame. There's no shield that you can use or construct to protect yourself from God's judgment. God himself in his mercy, must provide our covering. God, in his mercy, must protect us from his own coming judgment. And so he does. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, if you're not already in Christ. Turn to Christ today. Your fig leaf will do nothing for you. Nothing. We'll see this promise of the coming Christ in next week's passage. But for, for now, know this, this. The new and better Adam, Christ himself, is not only a good and better example to us. He is our Savior. He's been given to us by our merciful God to cleanse us of our sin, to cover our shame, and to shield us from the judgment of God. That is who Jesus is. Let's pray to him and worship him.